Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. I talk to guests with a wide range of expertise who share meaningful insights and wisdom. We give you practical tips, proven frameworks, and share ways to help you delight your customers. Welcome to part two of a two-part series of provocative and insightful discussion with my guest, Dr. Peter Fader of the Wharton School. He's a professor of marketing at Wharton and author of three books. His latest we're spotlighting called The Customer-Based Audit. We're gonna talk about why you shouldn't treat all customers the same and how businesses can better understand the health of their customer base. If you haven't listened to part one, I highly encourage you to listen to it. Okay, let's dive right in. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's dramatic when you when some of the illustrations you shared mathematically or financially are dramatic in looking at. First of all, you get a whole new lens, like you use the word mic- microscope. You get a whole new lens of saying, "Oh my gosh, look at this sli- this slice of my customer base is accounting for so much." And then in this, you used um, what you call them deciles, or when you broke them yes. into 10 percent, and um, it was really, you know, I guess you called it right skewed. Yep. Say, say more about that. Yeah, that it, it's the eighty twenty rule again. That mm-hmm. uh, that that there's that long tail, few customers who carry so much weight, whether it's the value to the firm or just the degree of engagement with us, their responsiveness to a lot of the CX efforts, and too often when we're out there doing uh, CX activities, uh, we're kind of we're, we're preaching to the choir. Uh, and we're doing things that are going to be really, really appealing to those high-value customers, who, by the way, were high-value even before we did those activities and still will be. So even though we're getting lots of good social media buzz and all that, it doesn't mean we're really moving the needle for the company as a whole. And so what I want to do, the the, the ultimate marriage is between a customer experience or whatever you want to call it, CSAT or whatever, and customer value. So let's do a decile analysis. Let's look at the top 10% of our customers all the way through the, the bottom 10%. And then let's start to understand how are they different from each other? So let's start to bring in some of the, the CX measurement on top of the customer value measurement to say, you know, what are the aspects of our product or service that are appealing or frustrating? And don't just, don't look at averages. Okay, but but look at the differences across those deciles to start to understand what makes those really good customers different in terms of how they use the product, how they talk about it. Let's do more of that. But let's also try to find out for the bottom ten percent, the 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 ones who aren't uh, you know in, in love with us already, um, to, to just get a better sense of of again what makes them different. So, so layering CX on top of CLV, something that we're actually doing with a number of companies right now, hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's just so much better than, than applying your, your, your customer experience campaign or your customer satisfaction survey just to a you know, random representative cross-section. All the action is in the differences across the customers, not in the average. Hmm. The differences in the customers, not in the average. That's and right. You spend a lot of time in the book going over what averages are and means, and, and you, you dissect that. That's right. And, to, and, and it's important to look at averages, no doubt, but, but then to get beyond them. And, and, and I made a great example. Man, we talk about polarizing. Here it comes. <laughs> Net promoter score. Oh, no. The thing that we all love and hate at the same time. 
And, and if you think about when, when Fred Reichelt and Rob Markey first came up with it and popularized it, one of the things that made NPS different, unlike a lot of great work on customer satisfaction, no average, right? It's the difference between the promoters and the tractors. Understanding the, the nature of the extremes hmm. is actually more informative and more indicative, more predictive than just telling us about the average. So it's, it's, it's important to recognize that, there's, that, 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 that the action, the value is in the spread more than it is in the mean. And the problem is for marketers who kind of barely got through that stat course when they were a freshman in college saying, oh, not variance, I can deal with mean, but don't give me variance. Um, it's, it's kind of important to, you know, um, to, to bite that bullet and suck it up and, and really understand what that means and to benchmark your customer base, not only on changes in the mean, but changes in the mix. That's going to be really, really important. Mm -hmm. And so I want to, I want to talk a little bit about, I think maybe some of the, the reaction that we saw on the, on the LinkedIn post I did, um, about not treating all customers because the same, because if you think about like our constitution and the United States is based on treating everyone has equal rights under the law and, you know, this idea of being treated fairly and the same, but actually this, what we're doing is we're saying, no, actually our goal isn't to just treat everybody great. Like uh, I fill in the adjective, remarkable, outstanding, great experience, whatever you want to say, it's probably part of the mantra of coming out of the CX department in any organization. And what we're saying here is actually, hmm, no, maybe not treat everybody outstanding. Say more about that. Yeah, okay. So first of all, let's point out that um, a lot of people will make analogies between our customer base and let's say our, our family or our citizens. It's a mm -hmm. bad analogy. <laughs> um, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders to you know, maximize value. Uh, as opposed to the responsibilities we'll have to our, our families and our citizens about, you know, maybe it is the, the you know, the, the least well-off one that, that that deserves our most attention. So, so the, the the kind of you know family metaphor for customers breaks down very quickly, uh, and that that's kind of a harsh thing to say, but it's it's the responsible thing to say. Uh, and to your point, Mark, you, you said it very very well. I am not saying we should treat customers badly. I am not saying we should fire customers. That tends to be a very bad idea. Uh, in fact, once you do your customer-based audit, you might find that even your kind of lowest level of customer service isn't good enough. So it might mm. be the case that we kind of, you know, raise the bar for everybody, mm. but we're going to raise the bar especially for those high-value customers. And we, again, we, we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to all of our stakeholders to do it that way. You know, it's, it's really funny. Uh, uh, there was a, uh, uh, one of the, the, the companies that, I had, again, I have a, a real love-hate relationship with is Zappos. And yeah. they're, uh, uh, they're, he was, you know, quite, quite a guy, um, Tony Shea, before he passed yeah. away tragically. Yeah. But he'd write all these books that, again, would mythologize customer service and say, you know, those people answering the phone, they're not just customer service reps. They're, they're wizards. They're ninjas or whatever metaphors he'd come up with. Um, and, and unfortunately, um, uh, a lot of what he said still carries through. Their, their current CEO, Scott Schaefer, uh, recently put up a, a LinkedIn post. Anybody could find it. Um, celebrating the fact that Zappos had its longest customer service call ever, 11 hours. Hip, hip, hooray. We had an 11-hour customer service call. 
And I'm thinking, well, no, this is kind of dumb. This is kind of irresponsible. This is wrong. And I wrote a, uh, I think, an a, 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 a honest but snarky blog post around it. And it created that same kind of firestorm of polarization that, that you've seen. After <laughs> people see you saying, yeah, you're right. It's about time that people stand up and call BS on this. There they have the people saying, no, you're wrong. You're just being a bean counter. And, you know, we got to think about these people as humans and we got to do whatever it takes to make them satisfied. And it's, uh, uh, to me, it's a non-debate. <laughs> um, yeah. but, but I think at least we're having the conversation uh, and we have to use data and analytics uh, as well as empathy and persuasion to get people on board with it and to kind of give up on some of those romantic notions that you're only as good as your least happy customer. And and to share, if maybe it help, may help settle in a little bit for, for the listeners who are still trying to wrap their head around it, because it took me a little while. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of examples and see, I'd love to hear how you respond to it. So one was in the bank I work for, and we were getting some mixed reactions in terms of uh, customer sentiment to onboarding in one particular area. And we did some more research and in-depth interviews and, and found out that it was particularly painful um, to go through if you're a business client to go through onboarding. And, and um, the solution was after some th redesign thinking is to create, to separate out the general customer service department and create two or three people for a department just focused on helping them onboard because the metrics prove that, you know, that, that particular um, touch point in their onboard, in their life cycle with us was critical and it affected the financials because um, look, there's, there's no business client that has just one bank they deal with. Of course. Uh, so, there's choices all over the place and making that transition, it takes a while. So they're not as sticky. And even if they come on board, they're less likely to have, you know, give you as much of their share of wallet if that onboarding experience isn't great. So we, you know, we invested money to treat that particular segment of our client base. And there was mortgage, insurance, retail, you know, there, that's a huge part of, I think any bank that has commercial, you know, business clients, that's a huge part of the profit going back to value. So we poured the value into that aspect of it. And I just want to, without getting into the details of the other two illustrations, one is box or not box seats, but um, sky booths at stadiums. Mm -hmm. Right. And I just, before we got on the call, I saw, I'm not going to mention which airline, but unveiled a new first class, like meal kit for, if you travel first class, you get like uh, a, a tray that was designed by customers in the shape and size they wanted with a little, you know, food tray within that and a cup tray and a, a, a thing that goes over your eyes so you can sleep well and, you know, audio stuff. And, and if you're paying the price to fly that way, you get this, they just unveiled that. So those are three examples. If you, that might help you understand if you're having some acid reflux over this idea of not treating all customers the same. T tell me what your thoughts are, it's are about so, this. It's so, so true. By the way, there are a couple of things you said about that, the back example. Yeah. Uh, uh, you use the key word, invested. And too mm -hmm. often we look at, or, or especially our CFO, looks at a lot of these kinds of initiatives as costs. Mm -hmm. oh, what's it going to cost us? Come on, do you really need to spend that much money on it? Um, whereas if we can make the CFO see the incremental future value 
that might be, that's projected to, to exist as a result of it, then it makes it so much easier to make that case. Uh, and again, that takes us right back to some of this customer-based corporate valuation uh, idea, that if we can use lifetime value as a way to gauge, guide, and evaluate a lot of these kinds of investments, uh, we, we sometimes we'll see that there's a, you know, a, just a, a huge 10 or 20x return on some of those dollars. Uh, unfortunately, it's so easy to see costs. Traditionally, it's been hard to see value, especially future value that hasn't manifested yet. And that's my job. It's my job to basically make that future value as tangible, as visceral as, as, as costs. And so we can make these decisions in a more balanced way, balancing you know, future value created uh, with the, the costs of doing so. Not We should never ignore the costs, but we should uh, put them in context. And, uh, and, and that actually uh, is kind of the, the thread, I think, underlying all of those stories that you told, uh, that, that sometimes the, the amount of money that we'll lavish on those best fans or, or even in a nonprofit setting that we'll you know, lavish on our best donors uh, it's, it's going to be so worth it based on the, the value that we create for them and extract from them. And that sounds harsh. And it sounds like we're, again, dehumanizing uh, the marketing process. Uh, but I think it's it's essential. And I think if we can do those activities in a humanistic manner, and I really believe we can, uh, everybody's better off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, great, great, great point. Um, so in, in the book, from a practical standpoint, you share four crucial steps, you call them, um, that go into sort of the how of this. And I want to share those now and have you respond to those. Um, number one, and this may be a summary of, of all the others, but invest in the proposition based on customer value. Two is invest in VIP customers, may have been related to what we just talked about. Nudge customer to increase profit and then manage loss-making customers. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about each of them. So yeah, the, the first one, uh, we've now spent a, a lot of time on it. Yeah. So not all customers created equal. On yeah. the VIP side, um, a lot of companies aren't doing enough in that regard. They're a little afraid to do it. Uh, they're afraid that it's going to upset other customers. Uh, in fact, what I wanted would be generally paid VIP programs that we're going to surround you with such a variety of, of extra you know, features and benefits and capabilities and um, that it's going to be worth your while. I mean, as a specific example, I'm obsessed with Twitter uh, and it just took them years and years to come up with a premium service that's going to let you edit your tweets, change your timeline and give you some functionality that most people couldn't care less about. For people mm. like me, I'll pay double what they're, they're charging for it right now. Uh, mm. So it's, it, it's, it's worth it to have that kind of pre, a paid for premium service. And we're seeing more and more companies starting to do that now, B2B, B2C, products and services. Um, and then, and then the, the point after that is the one that too many companies do jump to right away, which is that the, the nudging idea. And too many companies would rather try to nudge those so-so customers to become better ones. That they feel they have more control over that. They feel there's going to be a bigger ROI on that. And I'm not saying it's a bad idea. It is one of those principles. Um, but but often it's not going to have the same payoff as developing that that kind of premium service. Uh, so it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to try to you know just juice a few incremental purchases out of so-so customers, you know loyalty program, buy nine get one free kind of thing. 
mm-hmm. but 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 it's it's its returns are going to be a bit more marginal than when we focus at at, at the higher end. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a, it's a big part, a big theme here is to choose the tactics that align with the strategic intent that we have. So you know, premium service for the high end customers, loyalty program for the so so ones. As opposed to what other companies are doing, just to pick one of those things. Just pick one. We can't do all of them. Now let's just do it. Uh, and for many companies, it's the loyalty program. Let's just try to make it a panacea for, for all issues facing all customers. And when you spread yourself thin like that, you don't get much from it. So it's, it's really thinking strategically, choosing tactics, but you know, letting the customer level data, letting customer value, again, drive and, and let you uh, on the backside uh, evaluate how well you did. So, and do we hit that fourth one, manage loss, making customers? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, I, I noticed the word manage. It, it's kind of a, 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 a kind of a positive word, mm. which isn't to say, A, fire them. And every mm. now and again, we'll see companies do that. They'll have a systematic firing strategy that all customers below, you know, X, Y, Z in terms of their whatever frequency of purchase will be dropped. That's often a very, very bad idea. Um, but B, it's also, it, it's manage them. It's not transform them. It's it's uh, as nice as it would be to turn some of those ugly ducklings into beautiful swans. Like, you know, let, let's be real. Uh, and and it, it never hurts to try, but you don't want to overinvest in those kinds of activities because it's probably not going to work. So let's just, let's, uh, let's, you know, keep our costs at a manageable level. Um, let's again use uh, the, the value of any one of those customers might be really small, but there's so many of them that it actually might be worthwhile to invest a little bit more in customer service and so on um, to, just to kind of, you know, maintain those relationships in a, in a, in a manageable way. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that that lifetime value clearly makes sense at the high end. When we want to know, you know, how high is the sky and how much of that can we extract for ourselves? But it makes just as much sense in, in, in the low end because there are so many customers and it gives us the ability to, to really scale the offering and, and to know where to draw the line. So, so these steps and, and all that we, we, we just talked about, um, I, I think I just want to put a, put a point uh, here and get your reaction to it is... When you think about the work that customer experience leaders do, it, it includes things like listening systems, listening posts that we put up and way to collect insights from customers, analyze it, make recommendations. It includes journey mapping and design thinking to understand what clients want. It, it includes uh, metrics, right, that, that measured and, and includes and includes experience design. How are we going to design the experience differently? And, and what, I, what I hear you saying um, is that it's a yes and approach. Exactly. It's so, so true. So everything you just said, I agree with it all. But the problem is for many companies is we'll do those things broadly. We'll do those things for the customer base as a whole, as opposed to doing those things for, let's say, different deciles of customers. And so let's understand uh, just what the journey looks like for a high value customer versus a low value one. It's, uh, it's going to be a very different design thinking exercise based on the kind of customer we're talking to. Um, so let's understand a lot of those differences by customer. Uh, and then when it comes time to taking action on them, 
I mean, I hate to say it, but let's give more weight uh, to the, the to the actions, to the insights that relate to the higher value customers. Not exclusively. Again, we're not going to ignore those low value ones, um, but we should be putting our weight on those customer oriented activities. That's going to be proportional to the value that they bring. Yeah. And I can't help but think, and tell me if I'm wrong, I can't help but think if we're thinking through that on how to bring this kind of high value to the best customers, there's going to be some um, collateral, not damage, but collateral benefit to the rest of the, you know, we, what was it, Tang we invented to, because we were thinking <laughs> about getting to the moon and titanium and all these other things that were benefits. So wouldn't that be true that we, when we start to figure out what the best customers want, we can potentially share some of those learnings to other customers that or is parts of our customers. exactly right. Good for you, Mark. That, that's, that's so true. Then instead of trying to aim right down the middle and, and develop products and services for an average customer who really doesn't exist, um, if we aim high, uh, but, but just in a thoughtful way that we're going to design this customer principally with the high value customers in mind, but we're going to be mindful of the fact that we want the so-so customers to buy it as well. If we can design it and, and, and communicate it in the right manner, then we will get that kind of uh, trickle-down effect, uh, and we, we could see great value arising. And, uh, and, and I could talk about specific examples of that. So in, in my second book, I talk a lot about uh, Electronic Arts, the gaming company, uh, and they understand that not everybody's their, their best friend. They understand that they're one of the most hated companies in America, and they're okay with that. I mean, they're not thrilled about it, but they're not trying to be everybody's best friend. And they're going to develop the games primarily for those heavy-duty players. But let's make sure that we have features and versions and scenarios in them that will be appealing to the you know lower value, more casual players as well. Uh, and so designing products in that way makes so much sense, but still tends to be the uh, an unusual way for most companies to proceed. All right, excellent. So, um, so yeah, I did. I did want to talk about that, and we did hit the cust the intersection of of your work and traditional customer experience management. And to say they're not at odds, they're not foes, but they can work together. That's right, and, and, and they can, and they should, and in many cases they do. Again, we're kind of on a project right now with a, with a Fortune 100 company. We're doing exactly as I said. Let's look at the the customer lifetime value deciles and then look at, at at CX measures within each one. And, and it's just great to see their reactions to it. It's just so much more enlightening than when they just do it, you know, in a, across the board. And I just want that kind of practice instead of being a surprise. I want them to be saying, "Well, of course, that's how we should do it every time." Yeah. All right. Well, we're getting ready to, to land the plane. So I've got two more questions for you. Uh, maybe, maybe one, one informational question, but two more. So in the book, you use a, a fictitious name and you don't have to tell us the answer to this. You can keep it a secret, but for this company called Madrigal. So I, you could on this show on the delighted customers pack would be the first to reveal, or you could just leave it as a teaser. And so you have to read the book. So can you tell us what company that is? No, I cannot. I cannot. Oh. Honestly, I, I, I do know who it is now. Uh, but for much of the writing of the book, I didn't know. And while oh. I was curious, uh, I, I also didn't care just in that the, the patterns that we show in the book 
all these lenses and everything we discussed uh, are are pretty universal. Um, so no, we, we're we're sworn to secrecy on that, but it is uh, it's a company that that a, a lot of people would you know will will know and have have bought from. So you know a lot of your listeners' data is being graphed out some of those charts. Um, uh, but but the, but the important thing is really that it, it doesn't matter. In fact, it doesn't even matter that it's a a, a retailer because we'll see the same basic patterns if it were a uh, you know a, a company delivering services instead. See the same basic patterns. It was B two B instead of B two C. We see the same basic patterns if it's a a, a, a company that's um, that's selling to a very small number of customers instead of um, you know uh, many millions. Uh, the, the the patterns are universal, um, but the implications that that executives draw from the patterns are, are are wildly different, and that's that's what we're trying to change. Yeah. I, I get it. I just, I'm curious. And as I'm reading through it, I'm like trying to figure out who this is and, you know, interesting. I, 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 on one hand, I, I hope you can, yes. But on the other hand, I hope we did a good <laughs> enough job of, of uh, masking it so you can't. <laughs> yeah, no, you did a good job. Um, but, but along those lines, you mentioned this book and you said it, you said it earlier is this was um, the prequel in many ways to the two earlier books you wrote. And my question is, is there a sequel? There is. There is. There is. We're working on it right now. Oh. Uh, book number four is going to be what I call the five C's. And it does very much relates to, to one of the topics that we've been talking about. Creating a customer-centric corporate culture. And once again, I'll be the first hmm. to admit my own naivete. I've always believed that if I give you the right tool, customer lifetime value, and I teach you how to wave the magic wand, that that's it. Money will come raining down from the sky. But I've realized over and over and over in talking to companies that until you have the right culture, until you have the right alignment, until you have the right messaging throughout the organization, you're nowhere. So, uh, and I, this is a topic, corporate culture, that I know nothing about. I'm a quant guy. I collect dollar bills with interesting numbers. Um, but I've, I've hooked up with a couple of folks who do know a thing or two about that. And it's been really interesting to pick their brains about best practices in developing corporate culture along with best practice and customer centricity and finding the, the interaction between the two. I'm really excited about it. That's still a year, maybe two away, uh, but we've been ha- it's been, it's, it's been a, just a great learning journey for me. Uh, I'm excited to see that one uh, come out sometime in the near future. Okay. Well, that's good. I didn't, I didn't know uh, in advance of asking that question, whether there was something in the, in the, in the oven, but uh, glad, glad there is. Well, um, hey, this has been fascinating. I hope when that book comes out, you'll come back on the podcast. Well, Mark, given the, the kinds of wonderful questions you're asking and, and perspectives that you offer, uh, it would truly be a pleasure. All right. So in the last question is if, um, so I'm going to put in the show notes um, references to, uh, you had a Harvard Business Review article, links to the books, yet you shared a video with me. I'll include that in the show notes. So all these other references I'll include in the show notes. If our listeners wanted to reach you, um, what would be the best way? Oh, and first of all, delighted that they'd want to. Uh, just Google my name. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I don't hide. <laughs> I'm a professor. I like to profess. I want to be out there. I'm out there to you know spread gospel. So um, uh, yes, if people want to reach out, they, it's, it's easy to find my, my email, my social media. Uh, and even if they want to argue with me, that's okay. Uh, having this conversation is more important than just 
uh, either ignoring the customer piece or just living by a, a, a single way of looking at it. Well, thank you so much. It was uh, an honor and privilege to have you on the show. And again, I really appreciate the, the time and all the effort that, that you put in. And I hope that, that uh, other folks, uh, as they uh, pick up the new book, will, will read it and think about it just as carefully. Excellent. Thank you. Well, thanks for listening to the Delighted Customers podcast. I want to ask you to do two things. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content. I don't want you to miss anything. And if you've gotten something out of this, share it with someone. Make sure they have access to all this content and all the other great content coming up. You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes, and you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com.